Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by True Bill. $5 here, 10 bucks there. Those monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget about them. So get those subscriptions under control today with Truebill. Go right now, truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. All of the U.S. stock market indexes managed to shrug off what otherwise would have been some strong headwinds and still finish positive on the week. We got the hawkish release of the FOMC minutes midweek. There you had various Fed officials again talking about how committed the Fed was to raising interest rates, how aggressive they're going to be. 75 basis points clearly on the table for the July rate hike. In fact, later in the week, more Fed governors were out talking about 75 basis points in July. Nobody's really talking 100 but 75 seems to be a done deal. Also, some of the economic news that came out during the week did not miss expectations. Up until now, pretty much all the economic data has come out below expectations. We finally got some news that was actually a little bit better. Good news should be bad news for the market because any good news indicates that the Fed is going to continue hiking interest rates and that is what is creating a huge problem for the stock market. Yet again, the stock market managed to shrug it off, including the release on Friday of what at least superficially was a much stronger than expected non-farm payroll report. Yet even that report did not take any of the wind out of the stock market sales, which still managed to finish the week on the upside, despite again a big down week 
in the bond market, the yields across the curve rose back above 3%, even the two-year now at 3.1%, all the way up to the 30-year at 3.25%. The only inversion is the 10-year, which is just below the yield on the two-year. The two-year and the five-year are almost identical, but the big news is really in the foreign exchange markets and the precious metals markets. The dollar had a very strong week Dollar index actually got above 107, but it didn't quite hold that handle on the close. Dollar index finished the week at 106 spot eight, but that's still a significant rise from the 105 spot one where the dollar index closed the previous week. In fact, if you look at where the euro is trading, it's now below 102, getting closer to parity with the US dollar. Well, with the dollar strengthening, Gold tanked. It was down about $60 on the week, finishing the week at $1,742.60. Gold stocks, as you would imagine, got beat up, so they didn't follow the rest of the stock market higher. They followed the gold price lower. The GDX was down 4% on the week, and the GDXJ down 5.5%. Basically, everything that I thought would be happening in the economy is happening. The economy is in fact headed to recession. We probably are in recession. Now on Friday, the Atlanta Fed did upwardly revise its forecast for Q2 GDP, but it's still minus 1.2%. At one point last week, it got down to as low as minus 2.1%, which would have meant that the second quarter was even weaker than the first quarter. So it's not a question of will the economy go into recession. The question now is, when is it going to come out of recession? Because we're already there. Very few people were predicting that the economy would even go into recession, let alone that it already was in one, except me. But in addition to my being correct in forecasting a recession, I was also correct in forecasting that inflation would remain high despite the weakness in the economy. And I believed that that combination of a weak economy and strong inflation, stagflation, would end up being bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar. Instead, the opposite has happened. Now, I am still convinced that ultimately, my forecast for how this condition is going to impact the dollar and gold is going to end up being correct. Because what I am thinking now is the reason for the market pricing in a strong dollar is because the markets clearly believe that the recession that we're in is going to be short and shallow, that the economy is going to quickly recover from this shallow recession without any help from the Fed. And so we're gonna have a strong economy, but we're gonna have a strong economy with higher interest rates as the Fed is successfully ridding the economy of the scourge of inflation. And so all of this is going to be dollar positive and gold negative, but it's all a fantasy because the idea that this recession could be anything but severe is farcical. There is no way we can have a shallow recession, but that's what the consensus is. All the people that said we weren't gonna have a recession at all, now they're resigning themselves to the fact that we're in a recession, but they're all convinced 
that it's going to be a shallow recession, that it's not going to be severe. It's nothing to really worry about. And they continue to point to the strong labor market as one of the reasons that we don't really have to worry about this recession. In fact, they claim that maybe this recession doesn't even count as it being a recession, because after all, the economy can't be in a recession when we have such a low unemployment rate. We can't be in recession when we're creating so many jobs. And so they decided that this isn't even a real recession. And so we shouldn't even count it as a recession because we don't really feel it because people aren't losing their jobs. And so the markets are not reacting to this news the way I thought they would, Although ultimately, I think their thinking will evolve to eventually reflect exactly what I was saying when they realized just how severe this recession is. We are just on the cusp and it is getting much, much worse. What they don't understand is that if the economy is already in a recession with strong job growth and low unemployment, imagine how much worse this recession gets when we start losing jobs and unemployment rises, because inevitably that is exactly what is going to happen. But I think the most important point that everybody is overlooking in their belief that this recession is going to be shallow is a lack of understanding of recessions and why they come about. Recessions have to do with the market's attempt to correct misallocations of resources, malinvestments that occur during a phony economic boom, a boom that is created by a central bank keeping interest rates artificially low. When interest rates are artificially low, capital is misallocated. Projects end up getting funded that if the markets reflected a true interest rate, never would have attracted funding. So you get all sorts of mistakes that occur and then the bubble pops, rates have to rise and now the markets have to unwind all those mistakes. And that's why recessions are generally in proportion to the booms that precede them. Meaning the bigger the boom, the bigger the bust. So you can't have arguably the biggest boom we've ever had when it comes to the Fed artificially engineering a recovery where the Fed held interest rates at zero for about 12 years. Sure, there were a few years where they were slightly above zero, but barely. So when you think about just how long the Fed kept interest rates artificially low and how low they were, you have to think about all of the mistakes that must have been made during that decade of time. I mean, what happened during the 2000s, the mistakes that were made because Greenspan lowered rates to 1% and kept them there for a couple of years and then slowly raised them back to five, those mistakes were so great that we had the 2008 financial crisis. We had the worst recession since the Great Depression. Well, the mistakes that must have been made as the Fed held interest rates at zero for more than a decade have to dwarf the mistakes that were made back then. And therefore, the economic downturn necessary to correct them 
must be greater than what happened in 2008, 2009. So that takes any kind of shallow recession completely off the table. And the people who think that that's what we're headed for, again, have no clue what they're talking about. They don't understand the nature of the boom. So they don't understand the nature of the bust. And so they're holding on to the hope that we're gonna have this mild recession. And again, one of the main reasons everybody believes that this recession will be shallow is the strength of the labor market. Even though jobs and employment are a lagging indicator, the markets are still looking at this lagging indicator as some leading signal of a mild recession that will be over pretty much as soon as it begins. Before I discuss the actual jobs report that came out on Friday, let me mention the weekly unemployment numbers that came out on Thursday, as they always do. And again, the trend of increasing first-time claims continued. The prior week's 230,000 was increased in the current week to 235,000. And now the four-week moving average has moved up to 232.5 thousand jobs so we continue to see this increasing trend in more people filing for first-time unemployment benefits thursday we got the challenger job cut report and that revealed 32,517 announced job cuts for the month and that was a sharp increase over the 20,712 from the prior month so a trend of increasing layoffs i expect that number to get higher and higher traffic jams tailgating pileups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right the biden administration's epa is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today don't let washington become your backseat driver protect the freedom of driving your way Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, by the way, normally during the week that we get the official jobs report, we also would get the ADP private payroll report. But instead of getting the report, we got an announcement from ADP that they would be suspending coming out with their reports for the next several months. So it'll be a while, I think, before we get the ADP report. And so instead, we're just going to rely on the official non-farm payroll report. The one that we got on Friday, the consensus was for 270,000 jobs created. And I know I continue to wait for the disappointment. At some point, we're gonna end up with a number that's negative on non-farm payroll, but not in June. In fact, not only did we not get a surprise miss, we got a surprise beat 372,000 jobs were created. That was even above the highest range of the consensus, which went from a low of 190,000 jobs to a high of 350,000 jobs. But despite the increase in jobs, the unemployment rate did not go down. It stayed at 3.6%. But even more interesting the labor force participation rate not only didn't go up with 372,000 new jobs, it actually went down. 
labor force participation went from 62.3 to 62.2. Now riddle me this, Batman. How is it that 372,000 jobs were created, yet the people in the labor force actually went down? After all, if we created all these new jobs, wouldn't people have had to have entered the labor force to fill those jobs? And so if people were coming into the labor force, wouldn't the labor force participation rate go down? Not necessarily, because what if a lot of those new jobs were being taken by people who already had jobs? In other words, moonlighting. Most of these jobs, maybe all of these jobs, were created for people who already had jobs and therefore they were already in the labor force and that's why it had no impact on labor force participation. This is not good news. The fact that so many people who had one crappy job had to take a second crappy job in order to make ends meet because inflation is driving up the cost of living so much, this is not good news. And in fact, all of this is confirmed by the household survey that showed a loss of 347,000 jobs during the same month. In fact, it saw a substantial decline in both the number of people who had part-time jobs and the number of people that had full-time jobs. The only big increase was among the number of people who had multiple jobs. And in fact, one of the biggest increases was the number of people who had multiple full-time jobs. So in other words, it's not people just taking on a side hustle to bridge the income gap. People are working two full-time jobs, 80 hours a week in order to get by. These people did not want these jobs. They had no choice but to seek additional employment because they can't get by on the dwindling value of their paychecks. So the question is how much longer will there be enough fully employed people taking on second jobs so that we can maintain the fiction of a strong labor market before the layoffs overwhelm the moonlighters and we really start to see a big decline in non-farm payrolls because that is going to happen and it is going to hit like a tidal wave and once again it's going to catch everybody by surprise the severity of this recession for whatever reason is completely off everybody's radar and nobody has come to terms with the reality of what it would mean to have a recession where during the recession, instead of throwing a drowning economy, a life preserver, the Fed throws it an anchor. Those recurring subscriptions really add up. And sometimes, not only don't we remember some of the services subscribed to, we don't even notice the money coming out of our accounts. And that's where Truebill comes in. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot you had. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year by using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, all from the app. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 
over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. Like Becca L, who says, hands down, this is the best financial app I've ever discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused recurring subscriptions. Now I'm obsessed. I never want to manage my finance without Truebill again. What I like best about Truebill is how I get an alert every time there's an unusually large amount of money spent, which helps me keep my wife on her toes. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. And speaking of the drowning U.S. economy, I do want to go over some other economic news that came out. One was the Consumer Credit Report that came out on Friday later in the day, so nobody really paid too much attention to it. But the increase in consumer credit was supposed to be $31.9 billion, and that was a big decline from the $38 billion, which was a huge number from the prior month. And that actually was revised down to thirty. billion, but the drop went all the way to $22.3 billion. That's still a lot as far as I'm concerned, but a lot less than the markets had been anticipating, which to me shows that though the consumer probably wants to borrow more money because it's the only way to make ends meet, they're probably running out of the ability to do so. So they just don't have the credit available to continue to keep on borrowing to keep their economic necks above water. So this is further evidence that the economy is weaker than people expect. Yes, consumers are going deep into debt, but they don't have the ability to go deep enough into debt to keep this whole economic house of cards from imploding. Speaking about the economic house of cards, we got the international trade deficit in goods and services for the month of May. It was supposed to be 85.2 billion came out a little bit worse than that at 85.5 billion and that was a small improvement from the downwardly revised 86.7 billion from the prior month but these 80 something billion dollar monthly trade deficits are enormous and they still evidence an economy that is badly malinvested Again, a lot of the mistakes that need to be unwound in this recession are the mistakes that led to these massive trade deficits. That's what happened in 2008. The peak of the trade deficit cycle last time was 2008. We corrected that with the Great Recession. Now, we didn't correct it enough because the recession didn't run its course because the government intervened with quantitative easing. But now we're at a situation again where the economy is far more screwed up today than it ever was in 2008 and is in greater need of a cleansing recession to purge the malinvestments from the system. And that purge is going to require a significantly deeper recession than the Great Recession of 2008. So how can anybody be expecting a mild recession when the one that's coming is going to be the worst one we've had since the Great Depression? And in fact, it even could be worse than the Great Depression. With that comment, I want to move on, though, and stop talking about our screwed up economy and talk a little bit about the Japanese screwed up economy. 
On Friday, we got the very sad news that former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated while giving a speech. And because of the assassination, I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of Abenomics. And there's an old saying that you're never supposed to speak ill of the dead. Well, with all due respect to Shinzu Abe's family and my condolences go out, I can't help but speak ill of the former prime minister. And just because he was unfortunately assassinated, I am not going to change my view on the utter disaster that he created. In fact, what Japan is going through right now and what Japan is about to experience in the months and years ahead, this is the consequence of Abenomics. I really wish Abe would have lived long enough to see the consequences, the disastrous outcome of his policies and to be held accountable. I mean, in a way you could say Abe got off easy. He died before it even blew up. So he's not going to have to deal with the reality, nor will he have to accept responsibility. And in fact, given the circumstances of his tragic death, a lot of people may be reluctant to point fingers at Shinju Abe. But I will. I want to talk about on this podcast the complete disaster known as Abenomics. Abenomics boiled down to three things. They called it the three arrows. This was Shinzu Abe's plan to revitalize Japan. And at the very basis of that plan was the fallacy that the problem with Japan's economy was a lack of inflation. That for whatever reason, the cost of living was rising too slowly. And the goal of Shinzu Abe was to increase the cost of living so that it rose at least 2% per year. And to do that, the first arrow in the quiver was massive quantitative easing by the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan was going to put the printing presses into overdrive and print a lot of money. But the very idea that forcing a higher cost of living on the Japanese people is good for the Japanese people flies not only in the face of basic economics, but basic common sense. The goal of an economy is to increase the standard of living of the people living in that economy. And how do you raise the standard of living? By lowering the cost of living. The cheaper and less expensive goods and services become, the more goods and services people can afford to buy. And that's what generally defines a rising standard of living. Your wages go further. You can buy more stuff more goods, more services with your income than before. And as a result, you enjoy a higher living standard. What Abi wanted to do, the goal of Abinomics, was to impose lower living standards on the Japanese people in the name of benefiting the Japanese economy. And in pursuit of that goal, the Bank of Japan's printers went into overdrive. But what was it going to buy with all the money it was printing? Well, that was the second arrow. Massive deficit spending by the Japanese government. So Shinzu's Abe's plan was for the government of Japan to spend a boatload of money to run massive deficits and then to have the Bank of Japan monetize those deficits 
by printing yen. Oh, brilliant. I mean, this is the most harebrained plan ever launched. I mean, this is the same type of economic plan you had in Zimbabwe, right? Or in Argentina. There's nothing brilliant or new about Abenomics. They just put Abenomics on a policy that had been tried and failed miserably in the past. The third arrow in the quiver was to make the Japanese economy more competitive. Well, the first two arrows shot that one in the heart because the way you make an economy more efficient is to make the government in that economy smaller. Because when the government is smaller, you free up more resources to the private sector, allowing the private sector to become more efficient. But when you dramatically increase the size of government, you burden the private sector with the cost of supporting that larger government. So that third arrow of making Japanese industry more competitive, that missed the target completely. But unfortunately, the first two arrows hit the bullseye, and that is the problem, because the Japanese government now has an enormous amount of debt, because that was the deliberate plan of Abenomics, and a lot of that debt is on the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan. And now the Bank of Japan is caught between a rock and a hard place because they no longer have inflation below 2% in Japan. In fact, officially, the year-over-year inflation rate in Japan is 2.5% and headed much higher. And you already have a lot of people complaining in Japan because a lot of their costs are going up a lot more than that headline CPI number would suggest. And I got news for the people in Japan, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see some serious inflation in Japan. You're going to be looking at double-digit inflation over there. But in the meantime, you have nothing from the Bank of Japan to fight inflation. In fact, all they're doing is continuing to deliberately throw gasoline on the fire. And it's because of all the debt. The Japanese government has so much debt that... It can't afford to pay higher interest rates. So the Bank of Japan is fixing the yield curve and making sure that the yield on 10-year Japanese bonds doesn't rise above 25 basis points, even though the year-over-year inflation rate is already 10 times as high. Who is going to lend money to the Japanese government at a 25 basis points when the inflation rate is 2.5%? Nobody. And in fact, if the Bank of Japan keeps printing yen in order to keep rates from rising, they will create even more inflation. And that 2.5% year over year goes to 35 4.5%, 10%, 15%, wherever it's going to go. But the higher the inflation rate goes, the more pressure there is to sell Japanese government bonds, which means the more pressure there is on the Bank of Japan to keep monetizing those bonds. But eventually, the pressure is going to come to a boiling point. The Bank of Japan is not going to be able to die on this hill. At some point, they are going to have to shock the markets and let interest rates go up. And when they do, they're not just going to go up, they are going to surge. And that is going to be a shockwave that is going to be heard around the world. It's going to reverberate far from Japan. It's going to have big ramifications here in the United States, both in the market for U.S. Treasuries and in the foreign exchange market. Because once the Bank of Japan 
actually goes from inflation creator to inflation fighter, it is going to be a game changer. Now, if they don't change that game, well, then it's going to be hyperinflation in Japan. Then they're going to completely destroy the value of the yen. And I have to believe that there's no way the Japanese would be so stupid as to allow that to happen. On a less significant note, though, I would like to call everyone's attention to another Peter Schiff prediction that actually came true. If you recall, when the rumors first started circulating that Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter, and in fact, even after Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter, confirming those rumors, I was steadfast in my belief that he was bluffing, that Elon Musk never really had any intention to buy Twitter. I didn't think he really had the financial means to buy Twitter. I mean, sure, in theory, he could have borrowed the money, but I didn't think he was dumb enough to put himself in that type of a leveraged position. And I thought the money that they were talking about was well in excess of what Twitter was likely worth. And if Elon Musk wanted to have a social media platform similar to Twitter, he could just go ahead and start one on his own. He didn't have to overpay to buy the one that was already there. And so I kept saying that it was never gonna happen. And every time I did an interview about the Elon Musk Twitter deal, I always said I didn't think the deal was gonna go through. And my advice to Twitter shareholders was to take the money and run. Well, on Friday, Elon Musk made it official and he terminated his deal to buy Twitter. Of course, the funny part about it all is remember early on when Elon Musk said he wanted to buy Twitter, the Twitter board was, no, 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 you can't buy Twitter. And then they reluctantly accepted the deal. And now that Musk no longer wants to buy Twitter, the board is threatening to sue him to force him to buy Twitter. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about Bitcoin. And unlike actual gold that had a bad week, fool's gold rallied with the markets this week. In fact, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust finished the week up better than 12%. Again, proving that Bitcoin is not digital gold. It's the digital antithesis of gold. It does the opposite of what gold does. So clearly, anybody who is looking for an alternative to gold would not buy Bitcoin if Bitcoin does the opposite of what gold does. If you wanted some kind of digital alternative to gold, you would want to find something that was highly correlated to gold, but was digital. But unfortunately, that doesn't exist. You've got Bitcoin and you've got 20,000 other cryptocurrencies to choose from, but you don't have any digital gold. In fact, I wasn't paying close attention, so I missed it. But we now officially have more than 20,000 total altcoins. There's now 20,168. Incredible. For all the talk about scarcity when it comes to cryptocurrencies, clearly, Nothing is scarce when you have more than 20,000 competitors. In fact, I was watching on CNBC and there was a guy talking about Bitcoin and the problem for Bitcoin being all the competition from these 20,000 altcoins. And what his solution was, was for the government to step up regulations to rid the market of all these competing cryptocurrencies. He said that this was bad for Bitcoin to have to compete 
with all these other cryptocurrencies wasn't fair. And so what he wanted the government to do was intervene and put the other cryptocurrencies out of business to protect Bitcoin from competition. Now, I forget who this guy was. He was a major player when it comes to Bitcoin. He wasn't some minor guy. He was some big shot in the crypto world, basically calling on the government to protect Bitcoin from competition. I mean, how far has the Bitcoin proponents fell from the idea of advocating an alternative? This is freedom. People should have freedom to choose. Yes, well, they should have freedom to choose any of these 20,000 altcoins if they don't like Bitcoin. To say that the government should get rid of these coins because it's not fair, that they don't have a purpose, they don't really have a mission, that they should be regulated and not Bitcoin. But again, this is exactly what I was saying from the beginning when it was just Bitcoin and nothing else. I said, what stops somebody else from coming up with an alternative cryptocurrency and then people can buy that? Nothing, nothing stops them. Now they want the government to stop them. But that proves my point that Bitcoin can't be scarce because it can be copied. Maybe it's not identical, but it's close enough. You can't just say, we're going to create this cryptocurrency that's going to be a substitute for gold when you can have an unlimited number of competing cryptocurrencies. And now all that demand isn't just going into that one crypto, but it has to be spread across 20,000 competing currencies. And of course, the number continues to grow and grow with each passing day. All of these new currencies are born. They're created into existence. The supply is infinite. I've constantly talked about the massive inflation when it comes to the supply of cryptocurrencies. I mean, there's far more cryptocurrencies than there are actual currencies. There's way more cryptocurrencies than there are actual metals, let alone precious metals. And there's no limit to how many can be created. Because as this guy on CNBC was saying, none of them have any purpose. Each one is indistinguishable from the other. That is exactly my point. And to now have to rely on government to try to shut down and prevent these other currencies from being created because there's no market dynamic that would prevent it. To me, this desperate cry for help, to have the nerve to demand that the U.S. government use the power of the state to ban alternative cryptocurrencies from coming into existence and competing with Bitcoin amounts to an admission that the entire Bitcoin experiment was an utter and absolute failure.